HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45, live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Call in all of your questions, cooking or non-cooking, tech or non-tech related, to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Currently joining the studio as normal with uh, Nastasha, the Hammer Lopez, the Hammer of Cooking Issues. Hi, Nastasha. Hi. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be joined by... Superstar Chris Young, who's coming live from the main stage last uh, yesterday at Star Chefs, this being the Star Chefs edition of Cooking Issues. Uh, so he did his main stage demonstration at the uh, International Chefs Congress yesterday, and he'll be here in a couple minutes. He's on the BQE right now, <laughs> caught in Brooklyn traffic. He's not from Brooklyn, so I think he doesn't realize how awful it can be getting around Brooklyn sometimes when you need to get somewhere. Right, Nastasha? Right. 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 Anyway, uh, so uh, make sure, uh, you know, Chris Young... Uh, one of the authors of the mega cookbook, Modernist Cuisine, uh, will be here, and he will answer any of your Modernist Cuisine or uh, glider. Did you know that he's a glider pilot? No. Yeah, yeah. He, he's like an avid glider pilot, like, you know, catching thermals and all that. Not like, you know, little paper airplane mm-hmm. gliders, like the ones that he flies in. So he's an avid glider pilot, so if you have any questions about gliding or about uh, anything else, really, I guess. Uh, call in your questions to 718-497-2128, but think about it for a couple minutes because it's going to take him a couple minutes probably to get here, but make sure you call in uh, because that's going to be fun. Okay, so uh, what happened since last week? We had our uh, fundraiser, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the Museum of Food and Drink had a fundraiser at Ma Pesh Restaurant, which was, uh, I think, an unqualified uh, success in terms – I think the people really had a good time. Yes, they yeah. did. Yeah, they had a really good time. Mario Batali. <laughs> Mario Batali comes to the uh, event and is, was bidding like a lunatic in the auction. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I don't, know whether if, I don't know whether you know this out there, but one of my skills is to go completely off my rocker, bonkers, lunatic during an auction situation. Would you would you agree that's you are, one of my skills? You're a great auctioneer. Or at least crazy. Like if, you want, yeah. if, if, if what you want for your auctioneer is crazy, then I think – in fact – at our next event, Stash, see what you think about this. At our next event, I think I'm going to have as one of the auction items. I'll do an auction for you. Ooh, that's a good. Yeah. You like that? Like I'll do like a charity auction yeah, yeah, for yeah. whatever your charity is. Yeah. 
And like, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure, you know, most people get like higher ticket items. They're like auctioning off like a country or something like that. I, I could definitely get that, that money up there in terms mm-hmm. of how much that country is going to sell for it. Mm-hmm. As long as they give me the data on the country beforehand. <laughs> I need the data. I need to get jazzed up. I can get jazzed up about pretty much anything so long as I have the data. Okay. Today's show, again, is being – and I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying they must like us, which we appreciate. Today's show is brought to you again by The Modernist Pantry. I will read the, I will read the promo word for word. Today's show is sponsored by The Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? Modernist Pantry has a solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook or enthusiast, and most cost only around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH modifiers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With worldwide shipping, Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Fans of cooking issues that order $25 or more before next week's show will get a free bottle of Pectinex Ultra SPL, the miracle enzyme. Simply use the promo code CI56 when placing your order online at www.modernistpantry.com. Visit modernistpantry.com today for all of your modernist cooking needs. How was that? Good. Good? Jack, was that strong? It's pretty good. Good? All right. Stronger than some of your previous reads. Ah, oh, jeez. Of this one or of different ones? I mean, oh, di- like, different sponsors. Yeah, you know, I'm never going to hear the end of it. Like, uh, listen, if you're going to sponsor this show, right, and you're going to make a piece of equipment that I've never used before, right, I'm just saying it's hard for me to get enthused. I can't make a claim for a piece of equipment that I've never used. It's like not in my nature. It's just I can't do it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't mind shilling out and selling stuff that, you know, that I know I, I agree with, that I know they make a good product, right? So, like, you know, I don't know, PolyScience. I like their circulators, so I don't mind shilling for them. Do you know what I'm saying? But if I've never used your stuff before, how am I going to sell it? Jack, you're still mad at me about that? Yes. Ah. Sorry. No, I'm not mad. All right. All right. Okay. I am impressed that you've memorized seven of the ten digits in the phone number. Oh, yeah. By the way, guys, I still don't have the phone number for this show memorized. I've had listeners who have it memorized. I don't have it memorized, but I'm getting very, very close. I'm just missing the, the, the middle three digits, and then we're going to be good. Okay. Uh, uh, who sent this question, by the way, Nastasha? I don't have the name on the Ikejime. You'll find it. So I have a question in, uh, from, about Ikejime. Ikejime, by the way, is uh, the fish-killing technique uh, that, we, that we use, uh, that we studied, uh, Japanese style. Uh, and there's different levels of Ikejime. Ikejime really just means fish-killing. But uh, we use, in particular, a technique uh, called shinkenuki, which means destroy the spine. And the idea being that by destroying the spine of the fish, uh, you, you, you basically what happens is is that the spine keeps sending messages to the muscles even after you've killed the brain and so uh those messages that are getting sent to the muscles reduce the amount of atp that's available that's in, that's in the muscles because the muscles are using the atp the faster you use that up the faster you go into rigor the faster you go into rigor typically the harder you go into rigor mortis and fish muscle is so strong that uh you know it's it, it, it the strength of the contraction is strong enough to actually damage the muscle so when it comes out of rigor uh if it if it goes into rigor very hard and very fast um gets damaged, gets mushy. So if you're going to serve a, a piece of fish, a uh, certain fish, and you do this thing, the spinal cord ablation, shinkanuki, you can uh, get a firmer textured fish. So that's, that's what we're talking about, and here's the question. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on ikijime and how much it would could really improve the flavor and texture of fish caught on a rod and reel. 
I'm going to the Gulf Coast next week and hope to catch king mackerel, redfish, bluefish, and maybe some flounder and speckled trout. By the time a fish is landed, I will have been, uh, I w- it will have been struggling against the line for maybe as long as 10 minutes or as few as 30 seconds. Big fish will be gaffed, then hauled up onto the fishing pier. At that point, the custom in the area is to whack it over the head and dispatch it, then throw it in the cooler. My question is, to what extent can Ikejima improve the outcome? The fish will be stressed regardless of how it's subsequently treated. My plan would be to bring the fish to the pier, then either knife the brain or simply cut through the backbone blood vessels behind the head, then cut the tail, destroy the spinal column, and then bleed in ice water. An alternative would be to fillet immediately. If the cooler is too big for a whole fish, fingers crossed, because he wants a big fish, uh, are there any downsides to cutting the fish into large chunks and destroying the spinal column in each, then bleeding in ice water? Any procedural suggestions would be appreciated. Okay. This is an excellent, excellent question. His uh, name is Andy. Hey, Andy. This is an excellent question, Andy, because one of the things I've always wondered on Ikejime is the effect of post-catch stress on uh, on an animal. And now, you, obviously, you want the animal to be as little stressed and as rested as is humanly possible, and that's not necessarily possible when you line catch something. I've had only one experience with uh, line caught boat. Ikiji made uh, game fish in our waters, and that's in striped bass. So I did a shoot with uh, Dave Chang uh, for his iPad application. I don't know if it's out yet or not. I don't know. Anyway, uh, and uh, one of the uh, production assistants there uh, fishes off of Montauk regularly, went out on a boat and got uh, line-caught stripers and did Ikijime with the spinal cord ablation on uh, one and then basically you know, uh, whack over the head, gill cut, throw in a cooler with the other. And there was a definite difference in taste, the Ikejime one being uh, better, having a better texture. So that's only an N of one, so it's very hard to know uh, whether or not it, in all cases – I mean in other words, anytime you get the fish and you do the Ikejime, you're, you're increasing the quality as much as possible. Would you like there to be less stress as the thing is being caught? Sure, but I think it's it's definitely getting uh, – you're definitely going to get some help, at least in the very small amount of experience I've had with line-caught fish, uh, Ikejime, there was a there was a difference. Um, and you know, obviously the ones that are struggling 30 seconds are going to be the best. Also, you know, uh, I would guess that the, the bigger, stronger fish, the stronger a fish is, the kind of the more of effect you're going to get. Now listen, I really need you when you go to uh, – this is what I want you to do. Please, Andy, if you can do this for me, I want you to catch two bluefish. I mean, I know you can't control it, but I want you to catch two bluefish. I want you to do Ikejime on one, and I want you to not do Ikejime on the other one. And I want you to tell me whether there is a difference on bluefish specifically. The reason I'm interested in bluefish is bluefish is one whose texture and flavor can go off relatively quickly uh, after it comes out of, you know, a- after it's killed. And I want to know whether Ikejime can help with it because it's also a fish that really isn't eaten, I don't think, in Japan. And so it could be really an American kind of test on this. Plus, I love bluefish. Some people don't like bluefish. I love bluefish, and I've never been able to get uh, Ikejime bluefish. So please, please test that. Now, uh, instead of whacking over the head, uh, after you gaff the fish and bring it over, I would immediately uh, I would spike its brain, um, and the reason is, is is that stops it from flopping around and it's very easy to hit as opposed to trying to do a gill cut. 
right? You could hit it over the head and then do the gill cut, but I think you're better off spiking the brain. That like kills it like this and takes away the stress, and then you have an easier time getting to the spinal cord. Now, I would cut the spinal cord and the tail. I'm trying to learn how to go through the head of the fish to get the spinal cord, so you don't necessarily need to do the cut before you do the spinal cord ablation, but I'm not, not quite there yet because that's how they do it on tuna. Uh, but so I would I would put it through the head first, then uh, do the two cuts, put it through the spinal cord, and when you get it through the spinal cord, if you've never done it before, you can see the fish. Uh, it'll do like a shimmy as the needle goes down, so you know exactly how far the needle has gone down and, and through the fish. So you 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 know where you are. Now I would um, if the cooler is not big enough, I think you're going to have some problems. Here's why you don't want to cut open the fish. Uh, cut it into pieces first. You want the blood uh, pumping, basically. You want the heart to help pump out the uh, the the blood to really, really, really clean it out. So uh, if you can, please don't chop it into pieces before you get it into the cooler. Maybe actually if you can get down to the water, you can just bleed it in the water where the fish is. I don't know how high up the pier is or whether you can get to the water. Another suggestion, gut it right there. After you do the ikijime, gut it. Uh, as you after you open it up, bring a, a stiff brush with you, uh, and then go under. Uh, take your um, take your knife and go and cut along the membrane that's on the underside of the spine to expose and cut open the blood vessels that are running underneath the spinal column, and scrub that underwater with a brush to get all of that goopy stuff out because that goes uh, off as well. I would pull the gills out immediately and then take it and ice it and put it in the thing. I think that's going to be like uber maximum quality. What do you think, Stas? That's good. 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 He also wanted to know one other thing. Oh, yeah. I haven't, I haven't read his second. Oh, no, but there's one more after that. One more after the other one that I'm about to read? Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So uh, Andy also has a question on canning and pasteurization. It's a two-part question. He says, most canning recipes call for the sealed jars to be processed for 10 minutes in boiling or simmering water, supposedly to kill any nasties and ensure a safe product. And the low-temperature charts on the, bl- on the blog, cookingissues.com, uh, which I realize are dedicated towards meat and poultry, uh, I say that anything over 74 degrees Celsius is instantly safe. Do I need to process in the water bath for 10 minutes to achieve sterility, or is the 10-minute cook more for textual reason? Um, and then B, I did not use enough pickling liquor in a couple of jars, and subsequently not all of the pickled green beans are fully covered with a liquid. Is that a major problem? Okay. A couple of things going on here. Uh, so if you're going to can- – okay. We're talking about pasteurization versus sterility, okay? Um, when you're processing something in – first of all, if you're going to can an item, if you want to achieve sterility – Right, you have to. You can't just boil in, in simmering water. You have to uh, sterilize that thing, which means you have to pressure cook it using, uh, you know, recognized canning procedures. And those canning procedures are based on, uh, I think, what's in the what's in the can or what's in the jar, and how big the jar is, because you have to guarantee a certain temperature for a certain length of time at the center of your jar in order to kill any spores that are in there. So there are certain bacteria, and the one they're really worried about in canning is botulism, which uh, which basically forms spores and can't be boiled out with normal boiling. You have to go well over the boiling temperature and actually sterilize. Okay, Now, the reason you can do canning at lower temperatures without a pressure cooker in certain situations is because you have enough acidity present in your product 
to or salt or combination of salt and acidity to ensure that no botulism is going to grow in there. And if that's the case, you just need to kill off some of the easier to kill bacteria that aren't spore forming. And all the spore forming bacteria don't grow because of the very high salt content or very high acid content or both. So um, when you are boiling something or simmering it for 10 minutes, at boi- you're just ensuring you're getting to that high of, uh, uh, a temperature. That's not really a sterilization procedure. So the question is really what are you trying to guard against? You could, uh, you could cook for a longer period of time at a lower temperature and kill everything that's in there from a vegetative standpoint and therefore get a different texture. Right, but only if your product is inherently safe from a spore standpoint. So let me make this very, clear, very, 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 very clear. If you are going to sterilize, if you want to sterilize something and make a shelf-stable product that you can leave on an unrefrigerated shelf for uh, an infinite length of time, you have to either can it using a pressure canner, using recognized procedures for pressure canning, or you have to ensure that you have enough salt or acidity in that can to ensure that no spores, no spore-forming bacteria are going to grow after you do your initial kill step. Spore. Spore. So, and if you, if, if you have that, you can cook at a lower temperature for longer and basically effectively pasteurize the product but not sterilize it. On the second part of the question where you're worried about there not being enough uh, cooking liquor in the, uh, you know, pickling li- liquid in it, that could conceivably be a problem if it doesn't diffuse in fast enough. You could get possibly some growth of, of a product uh, in the portion of the thing that's uncovered. It's very hard to say without uh, knowing it first. But be very careful when you're canning uh, to ensure that you're not going to grow botulism. Let's take our first commercial break. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. 
718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Chris Young is still on his way, still caught on the BQE, which for those of you who don't know our uh, fine neighborhoods over here, sucks. Right, Jack? It does. It does suck. Especially Flushing Ave sucks. And that's kind of where it's close to where that's close to where it's we are. Probably where he's getting off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Roberta's. Like I tell you, why Roberta's is designed uh, basically solely for hipsters, and the only train really that services this place is the L, which is the hipster line. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we were like they threatened to shut down the L, didn't they, Nastasha? For like a, for like a week or something like that. Didn't you say every they're... weekend it's shut down? So what are the hipsters going to do? There's a there's a website that we can plug called is the L train fucked dot com. Wow, busting out what the F bomb. What are you gonna say, Dave? F bomb, F bomb. What? I'm not, I mean, I, Jack already told him about. It. They can go to it, and the answer is pretty much yes, yes. Well, here's here, here's the real question: Do you need to get somewhere? Then the L train won't take you. If you don't need to get there in a big hurry, the L train will be fine. I think that's pretty much pretty much how that's the L train much works. It. You can take the J. Yes, you can take the J if you enjoy a 20-minute walk. Okay. Uh, hello. A- another, a different Andrew writes, oh, by the way, Andy emailed us while I was talking about that and says, how long do you want to age the bluefish and or mackerel when you catch it? I don't know. It's a really something you have to kind of uh, test. I would, uh, after you get it home, I would take and uh, cut them into two fillets. I would taste some right away. Uh, and then I would uh, like keep it a day and then test it there. I doubt it's going to take longer than a day to, to be good. I mean most people who eat bluefish, they want you to eat it right, right away. I mean like if you, if you ever grew up fishing on Cape Cod or you, know, you grew up on, near Cape Cod in the summers and people fished for you, which is what happened to me, they would give you bluefish because it was considered a trash fish uh, you know, when I was growing up. And uh, they would tell you to eat it right away, and strangely, it's known as a very oily fish, and they would tell you – they would always grill it, always, 100 percent of the time it would be grilled. I've never had it cooked any other way on the Cape. And they would tell you to put mayonnaise on the fish, and here – I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but they say – oil. they don't talk like this because they're from Cape Cod. Oil gets out oil. That's how it works. You put the mayonnaise on the fish because oil gets out oil. doesn't make any damn sense to me at all. Makes no damn sense, but that's I'm just telling you. That's what they used to say. Uh, I know, you know, mackerel, another oily fish. You don't think of as aging necessarily, but some of the most interesting, best mackerel I've ever had was saba sushi, which was basically mackerel that had been aged overnight, wrapped in kombu. Like he fought, like the chef, uh, I think it was Sasaki San, formed, uh, you know, basically a roll with a vinegared rice and the mackerel, wrapped it in kombu and aged it overnight, which was delicious. So I think it's just you have to see. I used to have to test it. You're going to test it, and you're going to tell us how long to age it. Right, Stas? Yeah. yeah, she's not listening. Yeah, you we're doing me, a radio you show. You asked here. me to do something, didn't you? No, I just asked you to. T- that, was, that was like a half hour ago. Can you condense this question? Oh. oh, yes, she is condensing a question. She is doing work for the radio show people, so I apologize. Okay. Uh, Andy, Andrew, different Andy, writes in. I have a few questions I've stored up rather than emailing you one little question each week. Hope that's okay. Uh, so first, I was wondering about the mechanics of cartouches and whether there is really a reason to use one over just putting a lid on. Uh, and what we're talking about here, a cartouche is not uh, – a, 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 in cooking parlance, it's not like an Egyptology term. In cooking parlance, a cartouche is a piece of parchment paper that you cut into a circle uh, and then you cut a little circle in the middle so that it just fits into a pot uh, and usually you're going to use that in when you're braising something. You'll put that in and uh, and or if you're cooking um, certain times you're cooking vegetables, you'll do that. You'll put a little bit of water, uh, you know, and sugar and whatnot, uh, you know, butter or whatever uh, in your vegetables, and you'll put uh, uh, like a cartouche over it and cook it. Now, 
the theory of them is that it allows a certain amount of moisture to leave through the central hole in the in in the paper, right? Kind of like a parachute, lets some of the steam out, so you get a slow reduction, right? Without it getting a like, a, it's not super fast. It's kind of a controlled reduction, and, and also it, it keeps uh, basically a hundred percent humidity environment over the portions of the paper that are covered. So you're not going to get on a braised item, for instance, you're not going to get a lot of drying out of the meat that is not directly centered over the hole, right? It makes sense. So uh, is there a big difference between that and just putting a lid on? I don't know. You know, I've never... I've never really done the test. I can tell you how many times at home I've made uh, I've made the cartouche roughly zero. You know what I mean? Like on the order of zero is how many... I mean, that's not true. I used to do it sometimes for the, for the heck of it. I just don't know that there's going to be that much benefit over keeping uh, the lid on. I'd have to run a side-by-side test and see whether it really controls the uh, evaporation rate any better or whether or not it actually prevents uh, kind of some surface drying of the meat. Maybe this is something when Chris makes it here from the BQE we can, uh, we can ask him about, yeah? I'll put that on the list of things to talk to him about cartouche because I'm sure that they've studied that because they did a bunch of in-depth studies of um, – classic cooking techniques and you know they like to debunk the classic cooking techniques so we can actually get him going on uh on um confit as well get him get it get his motor going on confit okay uh my other question is about the method you talked about some shows ago with using gelatin and meat glue to make noodles by the way this is a wiley dufresne trick uh one of the great properties of gelatin as i'm sure you know is its fantastic flavor release is this still the case in this application? Uh, also, uh, is there any benefit in using this method over other thermo-irreversible gels for making noodles, I guess? Now, uh, that's an interesting question. I've had the noodles, and the noodles are delicious. Uh, also, they fry really well, better than any other kind of hydrocolloid noodle I've had. Uh, as for the flavor release, I mean, it seemed to me that they had a good flavor release because I – mean, it's just my recollection. It would be – okay, gelatin – Anytime you use a gel, you you care about whether or not that gel has a good flavor release. So, for instance, uh, alginate gel doesn't break up in your mouth very well, uh, doesn't leak out a lot of fluid, uh, so is basically the worst for flavor release. It's a flavor thief. It's uh, you know, it's kind of it's alginates are the enemy of flavor, which is why you either want a very thin or very soft uh, alginate shell. Uh, or, you know, a lot of something very, very flavorful. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of the flavor sapped out. And that's the problem a lot of times with things like alginate. Um, things like gelan have very good flavor release because they leak a lot of moisture. They break very easily in the mouth, and, they, uh, and they're used at very low concentration, so they tend to mask flavor less. Gelatin is kind of the gold star standard for flavor release for a number of reasons. Uh, it breaks very easily in the mouth. Liquid comes out. And also it melts at body temperature. So when you eat it, the gelatin literally melts in your mouth and turns back to a liquid. Flavor release doesn't get much better than that, right? So in this scenario where we're basically what we're doing is we're taking transglutaminase meat glue, stirring it in with the gelatin. The meat glue is cross-linking the gelatin so that the gelatin will no longer melt, not only at body temperature, but it won't melt even at, at, at deep-frying temperatures. So one of the things that gives uh, gelatin its great flavor release, the fact that it melts in your mouth, is not going to happen. However, 
it still breaks up very nicely in your mouth, almost like a pasta. So is it going to have as good a flavor release as straight gelatin? I would bet not. But it, you know, it is going to have a better – it does have a good flavor release, and that's just from kind of you know, me, me knowing that from eating it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. The Finally, although it's not really finally because he asked a fourth question. By the way, when you, when you guys write in and you say finally, make it the final question. Ask as many as you like, but make the final one the last one. All right. Uh, just kidding. I, I'm just kidding, Andrew. I don't really care. Okay. Uh, in your post on enzymatic peeling, you use a combination of two enzymes. Uh, I used uh, Pectinex Ultra SPL, which is the one that they're selling on Modern's Pantry, and Pectinex Smash XXL, which was the first one of the enzymes really that uh, I was using for breaking down pectin. Uh, and when I wrote the uh, en- post on peeling things with uh, enzy- enzymes, I used both. Have you found that Pectinex Smash XXL is not really necessary? In other words, can you do it just with Pectinex Ultra SPL? Yes, um, you can. So I no longer bother sourcing Pectinex uh, Smash XXL. I find that if you just add a little bit more of the Pectinex Ultra SPL, uh, that it works fine. The reason I initially used both was uh, the the people at Novozymes, the enzyme uh, person at Novozymes, uh, said that the one that was most optimal. They used to make an enzyme called Peelzyme, whose only job it was was to break down um, the kind of membrane around citrus fruits and also the albedo, the white part in a citrus fruit. Right, that's all that thing was built for. Peelzyme. They stopped making uh, Peelzyme. Chris Young is coming. I see him coming around. Uh, they stopped making Peelzyme, and so what the enzyme specialist at Novozyme said was, why don't you use a mixture of uh, Smash XXL and uh, Ultra SPL? But then later, it's just slightly more effective, so I just use a little more uh, of the one enzyme than you would of the two combined, and it works fine. We use about four grams per liter Ultra SPL uh, in, our, in our solutions to do our peeling, so that's going to work fine. All right. We are joined in the studio by none other than Chris Young, author of Modernist Cuisine, friend of friend of mine, friend of uh, friend of the cooking issues, and uh, are one of our West Coast buddies. What's going on, Chris? Not too much. Very frustrated with your traffic here in New York. Ah, uh, yes. Not used to it. Not used to it. I like that because you know, in in, in 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 Seattle, everything's nice. The traffic's nice. Me, 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 me. Yeah, right. that's, uh, that's, I think, why I'm going to go right back. I like the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, one question for you before I, before I forget. We had someone write in. I don't know if you addressed this in Modernist Cuisine. Uh, by the way, call in all of your questions to Chris at... 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So someone was saying, you know, cartouches, you know, where you cut the paper and then you cut the little hole in the center of the paper and you put it in the pot so that it uh, kind of gently boils down. Mm-hmm. Any any point in that as opposed to a lid? <sighs> Not really one that I could possibly think of. Uh, all you're going to do is slow down the evaporation, keep it closer to the boiling point. But uh, no, I don't really see any benefit to it over a lid. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing. So the question is, is uh, will you, are you going to prevent any local – so if you have a very tall pot, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm just talking right out of my behind here. But if you have a very tall pot and you have, let's say uh, – ah, that was my iPad, folks. And you have like, a, uh, uh, like an Asabuco or something like that. Sure. Uh, and so your liquid's not covering the thing. Do you think it's going to get any drier 
because of the because of the steam basically hitting that one section that's not covered, is it really not going to make a difference? So you're going to have like a local deficit of humidity there. I mean, I don't know. That's the only. I, I don't see it making uh, in the oven. I, I can see there being a bit of an argument for using one in a braise in an oven. Uh, on a stovetop, I don't see any benefit over a lid. I, I think that's highly suspect that it's going to make a significant difference there. But in an oven, you are going to slow down evaporation. You're going to raise the wet bulb temperature, and you're going to get an effective higher brazing temperature than if you left it uncovered. Oh, sure. By the way, this is something that, uh, you know, as long as Chris is here, let's debunk this sucker right now. You are not creating any pressure in a pot by putting a a lid on. Uh, Even a minute overpressure in your pot is many pounds of force on a large lid. You are not, not increasing the pressure to the extent that you're increasing the temperature on the inside of that pot. What you are doing by preventing uh, evaporation is getting your temperature actually up to the boil throughout rather than uh, rather than allowing it to uh, be basically be evaporative cooler. So an experiment you should run at home is take an oven with two Pyrex dishes, uh, same Pyrex dish, set your oven to 350, uh, cover one Pyrex dish with aluminum foil tightly, uh, and then, you know, jam a lid into it so that, you know, you're not getting much evaporation off of it, and then leave the other one open. The one that's covered will boil. The one that is not covered won't. Agree? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, okay. So, Chris, how was your main stage? How was your? How do you feel about it? How you, <laughs> uh, this is your second time on the main stage of Star Chefs, by the way, right? Uh, yes, this was my second time. Uh, this this was a bit interesting. I think we attempted to do a little more cooking this time and a little less uh, dog and pony show, uh, which went pretty well, except for the fact that we were cut short by about fifteen minutes. Yeah. You know, when you're doing a show that you set up from kind of far away, you have X amount to do and you you know you're going to do a lot. You don't want to get, I mean, 15 minutes is a big deal. No, I had to cut a lot out and we had to compress a lot of, a lot of steps. So uh, luckily my colleague Kyle was able to keep up with me as I dropped stuff. But uh, it was entertaining. Came, came complete with its own explosions. Oh, yeah. Well, so uh, I didn't realize what happened. Apparently what happened, okay, so uh, we might as well get into this. So one of the things, look. Modernist cuisine costs five hundred bucks, right? And and the, I get this knock, and I don't have nearly the kind of crap that you guys had. So I'm sure you get this knock even more than I have. This is stuff is you need a lot of equipment, blah 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 blah. You've heard this bullshit many times. I, I've certainly heard people assume that you need thousands of dollars worth of toys to do this stuff. Which, by the way, not the case. Uh, it, not only is it not the case, is that in, in my opinion, is that if even if you don't have access to the toys, seeing what other people can do with the toys helps you understand food in general, even if you're only cooking with a stick over a fire. That's just the way I feel about it. But uh, So one of the demos that Chris uh, did yesterday at Star Chefs was to do um, low-temperature reductions without having to buy a rotovap. So basically your ability to do low-temperature reductions in a, in a restaurant situation – uh, for under five hundred bucks, relatively effectively, yes. Yes, that that was the point. Is so, how do you how do you get on eBay a little Google Foo and put together your own evaporative uh, reduction system or vacuum reduction system? Right. So it's not it's not a distillation system because you can't recover. No. Uh, 
actually, you know what? Then it's totally legal, though, even to do port in it because you can't recover. That's right. You're not recovering any of the vapors. So it's not a replacement for a rotovap, but it is fun to point out and just needle you a little saying you don't actually need a rotovap to do what 80% of people do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, you know, I am I am the uh, the other section where I am almost always using the illegal distillate, but in restaurants you can't because, you know, you can't, you know, endanger your liquor license. So that's the, the main problem. So what Chris did was he set up uh, an aspirator pump. You had a nice one, though. That one's not a cheap one. Uh, well, we bought that one used, though. So I think if you were to buy that one new, yes, it would probably be about $1,000 new. There's no reason for it to cost that much. Uh, I saw them used on eBay for around 500 But I didn't get into this yesterday, but you don't even need that. You can even buy the aspirating nozzles that screw on a, on a faucet and just use the Venturi effect to basically give you a vacuum. And that's what thousands of chemistry labs around the country do. Right, but then your boiling temperature is only going to get down to whatever. I mean, look, here's the way an aspirator works is you're, you shoot liquid past uh, um, an orifice at a high velocity. It carries basically the air with it and sucks a vacuum. You're limited in the, in the vacuum that you can suck by – uh, basically by whatever the vapor pressure of water happens to be at the temperature that the water is. So the most effective way to do this is to use ice water. Uh, and so recirculating aspirator pumps are uh, the way to go if you want to get the lowest stuff and if you don't believe in throwing water away, like absurd amounts of water away, because you're talking like gallons, yes. gallons and gallons and gallons. Now, I'm not going to tell you to go on uh, the internet Search uh, for do-it-yourself meth labs and see how those guys use a flow jet pump hooked up with PVC tubes to aspirators to build your own recirculating aspirator because I wouldn't advocate that you go up and look up uh, do-it-yourself meth labs. But if you wanted to, you could go there and for about uh, – you with at Home Depot, you can get a good pump that will do this for like you know 80 bucks, 90 bucks and then you just go buy – a series you have to buy two or three aspirators, put them in uh, in um, parallel to get a higher rate of pump down, and you can do this. Although I'm not advocating it, but, but you can do it. I'm not. I'm advocating the pump, not the not the meth. Yeah, I, I think that's what's coming across here, David. Though yeah. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Like until until they get so tweaked out that they blow themselves up in their own lab, like you're, you start with like a, a people who are smart enough to do orgo. Basically, right, and, sure. and you know, kind of ambitious enough to build their own setups, and uh, so you know, they have some good ideas, and then they, you know, I think what I'm hearing here is you're not you're advocating buying some uh, stuff at Home Depot, not some phenylalanine solution. Bingo. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, anyway, look, we learn from everyone. Learn learn from meth labs if if they if they're there to help you. Uh, but what I was really interested in. Uh, with this setup, so basically, it's just a, a, an Erlenmeyer flask with a sidearm, uh, a plug in it, and uh, stirring and, hot plate. And a stirring hot plate. Although you know, you could get away with. Look, you don't, don't want to ignite it, so you could get away with. You could get away with. I guess you need it to stir. Huh? You, yeah, you want to avoid the bumping. That that sort of the aside from stirring and getting yourself a nice vortex or greater surface area, you will get it jumping all over the place if you were just to put it in a pot on a. Uh, a hot stove. Right. I mean, my only problem with the with those stirring hot plates is that um, 
A, they're, they're not cheap. You have to get them used. You have to get them used. But uh, there was a I, – I literally before my presentation yesterday, Googled eBay just to double check. And there was a, a huge number of them for around $100. Um, and they're, they're dirt simple, so there's not much that can break about them. Right. But just so you guys who haven't used one out there, they are great. I'm not going to deny that. Um, you know, and they and this magnetic bars are like two bucks from McMastercar.com or Colparm or whatever. They're like sure. two bucks. They're nothing. Uh, the one problem I have with them is that their heat rate is very very slow. So they will once they're stable, they're good and ready to ready to rock. But just know that when you turn one on, don't expect it to get up to a temperature instantly. And they don't dump a lot of watts quickly into your. Which is not a problem. You actually that's good for you. That's that's yeah. good. You know I mean? They're designed for a chemistry lab where stability of your temperature and accuracy is a lot more important than responsiveness. So it can be frustrating when you turn it on and it takes 30 minutes to, to get to its stable temperature. But right. once it's there, who cares? Right. That's it. That, but that's my point. My point is, is, that, is mm-hmm. that it's going to take a cook a while to get used to well, the response. Is it really all that different than a French top? I mean, a French top, you turn it on in the morning, you leave it on all day. It doesn't change temperature mm-hmm. massively. And if you're used to that... You just leave this thing on all day and know that it's hot and don't touch it. That's that's a very good point. And but my all, my another point I've always said is that I wish more cooks in the U.S. were used to French tops because oh that's right I, <laughs> I did my cooking in over in the, with yeah, the euros. Yeah, I mean like I mean the amazing thing about about them uh, is that I think it's really interesting to because on a French top you don't you don't uh, adjust temperature by adjusting knobs. You cook spatially, so you know uh, kind of what. You know, you know what temperature your pot's going to be based on where it is in space on the top, which I think is really great. I think it's a really interesting way to cook, but again, not something that I think most U.S. cooks are used to. No, and I think we'll probably end up skipping that and going to induction. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, I always wonder, is, like, is there a problem doing an induction magster? Is it a problem, or can it be done? I would think it could be done. It might be a little bit of cleverness because you would need to... You'd have you'd be trying to couple a magnetic field to the pot in the same time, uh, basically rotate that field to get your your uh, stir spinning. So I imagine it could be done, but it wouldn't be trivial. Yeah. So anyway, so what Chris was talking about uh, about the explosions yesterday was that uh, he took the thing off of the heater to show that it was still going to boil, even though it wasn't being currently heated. It's because we were lowering the pressure, or he was lowering the pressure in the Erlenmeyer using the uh, aspirator. And uh, set it down. Eventually what happens is the aspirator starts getting the pressure down and the product starts cooling and it's no longer boiling. Sucked enough of a vacuum to inhale the cap that was on the flask into the Erlenmeyer flask and then ejected uh, liquid out of the Erlenmeyer into the air. Uh, It's kind of cool. I thought it was nice. Yeah, that that was rather spectacular. It, It gave me pause. Yeah. It was a good 10 seconds of going, what the hell just happened there? Yeah, well, you know, and this is a – oh, this is another good point. A couple things about this. One, I'm not going to insult the gastrovac on air except to say that it doesn't work and it's useless. So uh, the only way you can – gastrovac is, by the way, is a, is a machine that you buy that has a very bad vacuum pump on it that then – should I be saying this? Do you agree with me on this? Um, it's a bad vacuum pump. It's useless. Yeah, it's useless. If you own a chamber vacuum machine, there's no reason to own a gastrovac. True or false? I don't think there's a reason to own a gastrovac. Full stop. Right. But if the gastrovac guys had, instead of putting that vacuum pump on it, put an ice an ice uh, bath aspirating run pump. aspirating pump, now I think you have a, a, 
a good thing. So the point of the gastrovac is you're supposed to be able to do, as Steingarten told us yesterday, Jeffrey Steingarten, was to do things like jellies at lower temperatures so that things don't caramelize. And to do, like, Wiley was, was very, very interested in vacuum frying for a long time so that you could you get all the fry, moisture. Well, and you can fry things that are very sweet that would burn at normal frying temperatures. So right, bingo. Like they they do this in the tropics in Thailand and stuff. They'll do deep-fried pineapple chips. Sure. sure. <laughs> or or a- apple chips, another big one that you do that you, right. you, you want to totally dehydrate them in a frying situation but, but not at, at a lower temperature. But this no. isn't the way most people view their gastrovac, and that's, I think, why we're both saying this isn't a, a compelling technology. Right, because, and here's the kick. The gastrovac won't work for either of those two applications because anyone that knows anything about uh, vacuums and distillations will tell you in order to boil something off, you need to either recondense it or your vacuum pump needs to be able to handle the vapor and it can't. But Chris's aspirator pump, on the other hand, could do that because it can take as much water in as it wants. It yeah. doesn't matter. That, that is one of the, the beauties of it is, is you can foul it up with the, the, the worst vapors and it does not care. That's why we use them in chem labs. Uh, right. So robust. while I'm not giving up my Rotovap anytime soon, I think this would be a good solution to do kind of lower temperature jellies. You know, if you want to reduce citrus juices or anything that has a real delicate aroma and flavor that would change with any high temperature boiling, this is the way to go. So I'm going to give it a qualified thumbs up. Listen, why don't we go to one more commercial break and we'll come back for another segment with Chris Young. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call your questions in too. Nastasha, what's the number? 718-497-2128. That's? 718-497-2128. All righty. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, before we go any further, Adam Lazarick uh, wrote a question in before, and uh, apparently there was a typo. He wants everyone out there in internet land to know that he does not recommend cooking a, uh, a was it a short rib, I think, uh, at 130 for eight hours. He knows that that's not long enough, so he doesn't want anyone to have that uh, 130F for eight hours attached to his name in any way or uh, to the uh, Lacroix restaurant where he works in Philly and we hope to get out to the next time we're in Philly. So for anyone out there listening, he knows better. And I saw him at Star Chefs actually yesterday. Mm-hmm. Nice guy. Okay. Uh, 
And one more little note, uh, if I can get back to it, is uh, – in fact, I'll get back to the note. I'll have it be my, my ending. Uh, Andrew wrote in and, and agrees with you about candies, but I'll read his, I'll read his notes on candies uh, as we go. But uh, oh, I also mentioned before you got here that uh, you were a glider pilot. I am. Yeah. Yeah. That is the other hobby. Yeah. So, well, gliding and cooking. That's, it's, you know, what else do you need? So uh, I want to talk about some of the stuff you're working with. I mean, look, everybody who tunes into our show knows modernist cuisine. I feel like, you know, I, like, if you don't know, I, I would be shocked if there's even one person who can hear my voice right now that doesn't already know about modernist cuisine because – did our publicist pay you to say this? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm just saying. I just don't, you know, it's, I, can't, I just can't picture it. I can't. Look, if you don't know it, if, if you are the one person who was suddenly born and got interested in tech, technical cooking, and this is the first thing you've ever heard about it, go Google Modernist Cuisine. Okay. Uh, but let's talk about some of the stuff you're working on after the book. Sure. Uh, one of the things I was interested, you were telling me you were, you were working on a project uh, – on milk in Africa. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. So we did the cookbook at uh, Nathan's day job, which is running a company called Intellectual Ventures, which uh, simply put, it's an invention company. And so the cookbook project was just one of many odd projects going on. We had anti-malaria projects involving lasers shooting mosquitoes down. That was going on right in front of the kitchen. Um, I've seen the laser. It's cool. Yeah. So um, I got asked at the end of the book project, since I'm, I'm kind of a, a, a technical food guy, if I would help out on another project that was going on in the lab, which was um, basically improving uh, the milk situation in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly Kenya and Uganda. This is a, a Gates Foundation-sponsored project. And we take it for granted here in this country that we can get milk from the farm, it can be shipped, it can be pasteurized, and it can be kept cold, shipped around and distributed, and we get this very fresh milk supply. But in fact, that's a very recent technology. Even in this country, it's less than about 60 years old that we've reliably done that. And before that, we did all sorts of crazy, wacky stuff, like putting formaldehyde in milk to try to eke out a little bit more shelf life because we didn't have a reliable cold chain. Delicious formaldehyde. Yeah, real tasty stuff. So Africa, it turns out, shipping things and keeping them cold, really difficult. Um, reliable cold chain, non-existent. And so... Uh, by some estimates, 50% of the milk that these small-hole dairy farmers produce spoils before it can be sold. Incidentally, it turns out that 50%, they would need to increase their amount of milk sold by about doubling it to basically break the poverty trap. And most milk produced in sub-Saharan Africa is by small-hole dairy farmers who have two, maybe three cows, um, and they're not able to sell their milk before it spoils. And, and then even then... Uh, they don't capture a lot of the value. The dairy traders do. Who t- I mean, theoretically, all of the milk in Kenya is supposed to be pasteurized. In reality, 80% of the milk is purchased and sold and consumed raw. And actually, that's not strictly true because people don't drink raw milk. They would all be dropping like flies because it is basically diluted shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the bacterial yeah. counts are fantastically – I mean, just – mind-boggling numbers of over 100 million colony-forming units per, per milliliter. So everyone boils the bejesus out of their milk, and as, as a result of this, they turn out, it turns out they like the flavor of boiled milk, where you and I might go, oh, that's a little kind of sweet-tasting, not to, not to my liking. We're used to fresh milk. Well, the insight that um, I had was basically, why don't we, if they like the flavor of boiled milk, why are we putting all this effort into cooling it down? Why don't we basically collect the milk, 
bring it up to sous vide temperatures, uh, pasteurization temperatures, because that's very easy to do in Africa, and then hold it hot for many days at a time until it's sold, it's purchased hot, and then it can be used within several hours. All right, so those of you guys out there, listen, here's the, here's the thing, right? Boiling energy intensive, especially if taken from cold, right? So to cool down and then boil energy intensive. Heating it up to not as high a temperature, but keeping it there, not as energy intensive. Right, and it's actually even more than that because what happens today is they transport the milk. It's chilled down, then it's heated up again, then it's chilled down again, and you have all these heating and cooling cycles. And then the problem is you've pasteurized it, and now it has to be kept cold to be shipped around. And that's the real falling down is it's – forget even the total energy consumption. It's just not possible to ship it around cold. But if you have a very well-insulated container – it's very easy to ship it around hot, and so now you don't have the temptation that the current traders have of, let me put formaldehyde in there, let me put hydrogen peroxide in there to try to prevent my inventory from spoiling before I can sell it off. So how long can you hot hold? Um, we're, we're actually working on finding out, I mean, you can hold indefinitely from a microbiological standpoint. Taste though, from taste standpoint. That's going to be very subjective. To me, at three days, that's the, the upper limit. What about for the consumer there? Well, we're doing sensory studies right now to figure, it looks like at one and two days, almost everyone thinks the milk's fine. At three days, maybe 10% of people don't. It's going to fall off by some amount, and so probably the price your milk commands falls off over a number of days, so, too. So the flavor profile, even though they're going to boil it when they get it, yes, uh, is different if it's been held hot for longer than about three days. You're essentially running, even though it's a very wet system, over that duration of time, you mired. get some mired reaction, so yeah. you actually get some caramel color forming some of those flavors. Um you know, the milk, yes, you've destroyed some of the micronutrients, but in fact, in Africa, the macronutrients is all you give a shit about. Right. Now, uh, one of the problems you were saying in this also is getting heat exchangers that don't foul up in the field because you want this to be as simple as possible for the farmers. It, implement, it has right? to be incredibly low tech. It has to cost less than $200 to be a viable product. And how close are you to hitting that number? We're very close. We're expecting to be doing pilot studies in January in Kenya. Right. And so now – just so you guys know out there, because this is another thing I hate, is you know, you know, Chris has been involved in high high tech cooking for uh, a long time, and they say, you know, the stuff that you think about never has any kind of impact, and it is true that you know tend to focus, uh, and the book focuses on things that uh, are are aimed at a high end consumer, let's say, but. Uh, turning now the same it's the same thought process it's like here are the givens here's what we're trying to achieve right here's the problem here are the givens what can we do with it so it's the same kind of creative notion that can then be applied to this kind of a problem and i think what's you know what's different about uh you know what at least my impression of what's one of the things that's different about what chris is doing here uh with the gates foundation right mm-hmm. and, yes and, and and nathan i guess uh, as yeah well, it's intellectual right? ventures and the gates foundation uh is that starts from a uh, science perspective, but more importantly from a cook. What tastes good? How can we make this milk taste uh, the way that these guys want the milk to yeah. taste? Not how do I want the milk to taste or not like how do I just make it safe? How do I make milk that these guys want to drink that also is economically viable for them and, 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 and will, also, will also be safe? But the safety has to go with the it tastes good to them. Yeah, it's very funny because – in a lot of situations, people come in from the Western world and want to force a Western technology, a Western viewpoint onto them. But in fact, they don't like the flavor of our pasteurized milk. It's too bland to them, whereas we like that blandness. They don't like homogenized milk at all. It's too lean tasting. They want that rich, full fat taste you get of, of the raw, unhomogenized cream. 
And so everyone who's looked at this problem before is trying to say, well, here's how we do it in the Western world. Let us show you how it's done. And we took a slightly different attitude of saying, well, that's not what they like anyway, so why don't we just try to figure out how to give them what they like, and we just have this problem of preventing the milk to spoil. You could do it cold, but why not do it hot? So what percentage uh, do you think now of milk in Kenya just is unsaleable because it goes bad? We think about 50% of the milk is, is lost to spoilage. Right. I think you said that before, but I just want to say it again. 50%, yep. right? So – and how big a number is that? Oh, uh, it would be trilli- – Hundreds of millions, close to billions of liters probably annually. Right. And so that's how many – That's how over many, the broader sub-Saharan Africa and, region. And if you, if you remember, so it's 50 percent of the milk is co- going bad right now and is unsaleable. And that's about the number it would take yield-wise, du- double the current yield, i.e. not losing that 50 percent to get those farmers out of the poverty line. So you're talking this gets them to that place where they're no longer at the poverty line. We're, we're, I mean, this is part of a much broader initiative that the Gates Foundation has funded called the East African Dairy Development. And the idea is that milk is a major product for people. It's a major source of nutrition. It's a source of, of actually drinkable water. And so we're hoping that this is one step in basically really solving some of the problems over there. Small differences may have a big impact. All right. Nice. I like that. Uh so, doing good work. Uh, is that laser thing with the mosquitoes actually working or no? Uh, it is actually working. They were doing some testing of the, the, the kill laser uh, last week, I believe. So this is basically uh, like Ronald Reagan's anti-missile Star Wars thing, and it just shrunk by a couple orders of magnitude. Yep. I mean, quite literally, that's what it is, right? I yeah, mean, the, the basic idea is that uh, if you can, in a, in a say, around a village, reduce the mosquito population... By a significant amount, don't, don't totally eradicate it, but reduce it, you can have a profound impact on how quickly malaria is transmitted. So we decided to start shooting the lasers out of the sky with a laser. Yeah, it's crazy. I like that. Yeah, it's crazy, it's, though. It's, it's loonies, Looney Tunes, but it, it does work. All right. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read a comment on Candy about Nastasha, and Chris is going to comment on that. And while I'm doing this, I want him to think of something uh, in cooking that he hates. And we'll end with something that he hates in cooking. Right? You're going to think about that while I read this? All I'm right. going to think about that. All right, Andrew writes in, and he says he's also like to say that Andrew is totally with Nastasha on red, orange, and yellow candy being crap candy flavors. Artificial cherry, this is Andrew's words, not mine, is a vile abomination and sullies cherry's very name. I mean, come on. If you can't make a flavor that is remotely like a delicious fresh cherry, don't use it at all. As for oranges and lemons, they're just boring. With fantastic flavors at flavor houses producing candy manufacturers, they have no excuse to keep using these crap flavors. Still, the worst candy flavor of all time is popcorn jelly beans. I can force myself to eat other distasteful flavors like artificial cherry and in turn increase my appreciation for the great flavors, but Jelly Belly popcorn goes straight in the trash. All right. Any comments, Nastasha? I agree. We have a caller. Just oh, really? All right. So Chris is going to think about what he hates. And caller, you made it in just under the wire. Hi. Uh, my name is Janani. Um, and I have a question about hard-boiling eggs, actually. Uh, I'm wondering if it's better to put the egg in uh, when the water is still cold or to drop it in once it's hot. All right, listen. I'm going to have what I think, but I'm going to let Chris say what he thinks, and then we'll argue about it. What do you think, Chris? Generally speaking, I like – so there's a pro and a con to it. I like putting it in cold because the egg doesn't tend to get the thermal shock, and it doesn't tend to split on you. But but it becomes a lot more difficult to time it just right because how long is it going to take that pot of water to get warm? And – I've read studies that say it's harder to peel if you go from cold versus if you go in straight hot. But uh, here's my thing. Are you timing your eggs very, very rigorously? Uh, no, I kind of just leave it and come back. Then go from cold. Then go from cold. Who cares? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, look, these boiling water things. What they're doing is is they are uh, they're, they're getting a large, large pot of water boiling, and they're plunging enough eggs in there that the temperature never really drops appreciably below the boil, okay. and therefore, therefore, assuming you use the same size eggs all the time, you can get a very accurate temperature. If all you're concerned with is getting a hard-boiled egg and not turning green on the outside of the yolk, then I would just bring it to just below the boil, leave it covered, and let it go back to cold. It won't get... What do you think about this? Uh, I I think that's fine, and I'm going to throw in one tip here. If you have a hard time peeling your your hard-boiled eggs, get yourself a blowtorch. If you hit the shell with a blowtorch and then try to peel it, it's way easier. After it's pulled out, it's it's dry. After it's done cooking, after it's dry... You just go around uh, basically hitting the surface with a blowtorch for an intense pulse of heat, not really enough to cook it, but mm-hmm. that shell will come away much more easily. Really? Great. Nice. Well, thanks for the call. Great. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. So, Chris, to, to take us on out of this, give me something you hate. Uh, I hate uh, I hate the label of molecular gastronomy. Boom! And, and I hate the parlor tricks that tend to come with it. Oh, yeah! You give know, me some more. Give for, me a good For about 10 years, I've been associated with this kind of cooking, and... I will go into restaurants, I see lots of foams, lots of gels, and done well, these can be wonderful, they can be exciting, and they should exist. But first and foremost, it has to be good cooking. And I'm getting tired of going into restaurants where people figure out who I am, and all of a sudden the gels start come flying out. So I despise that. Stop. Nice. Nice. And have you ever met someone who calls themselves a molecular cook whose work you respect? Oh, going rough. I I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Don't use molecular gastronomy. Thanks, Chris Young. This has been Cooking Issues. Vicious, vicious vodka. Oh, you dirty rat. Got me on this corner. And I don't know. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The Heritage Meat Shop has just opened in the Essex Street Market. Open from 9 to 7, Monday through Saturday, and 10 to 6 on Sundays, the Heritage Meat Shop supports independent family farms and animal welfare-approved and certified humane raising standards. Most importantly, they offer a wide variety of heritage breeds. So stop by, get a sandwich, try the charcuterie. The Heritage Meat Shop at the Essex Street Market. The following is a message from Heritage Foods USA. 14 family farms and over 50 restaurants have committed to participation in No Goat Left Behind, a new program developed by Heritage Foods USA, a meat distribution company dedicated to preserving endangered breeds. Without an end market, the majority of male dairy goats are sold into the commodity market or killed at birth. Dairy farmers are always struggling with feed prices, milk prices, and weather. Goats usually have twins or triplets, and for every female who will become a milker, there is a male buckling who will become a financial drain. It makes no sense that these males are sold into the commodity market or put to death when the United States imports almost 50% of its annual goat supply. 
Home consumers interested in participating can order goats through HeritageFoodsUSA.com. They will receive goats via FedEx, and home delivery is available for New York City customers. In addition to the goat, these packages will also include recipes and a DVD featuring interviews with the farmers, processors, and chefs demonstrating how to break down and cook goat. Again, for more information on No Goat Left Behind, visit www.heritagefoodsusa.com or call Aaron Fairbanks at 718-389-0985. 